Hello and welcome to What Were You Thinking, brought to you by Vestia Collective and hosted by me, Henry Holland. The guy who everyone knows for rhyming people's names on t-shirts, but whose name actually rhymes with nothing. Trust me, I've tried. Before we get started, I just want you to know that this podcast is not about my guests' fashion fails. It's all about the fashion moments that shaped their lives both personally and professionally. How much they love or hate fashion, and what were they actually thinking when putting together some of their most recognised looks. Grab me by the ears, Jake Shears. When the Scissor Sisters burst onto the music scene in the early 2000s, Jake Shears was the queer frontman we all needed. And alongside Animatronic, Baby Daddy, Delmar Quay and Paddy Boom, they lit up my world. The Scissors were an unapologetic celebration of queerness, fashion and camp. And the champions for the weird and wonderful. Having started out in the club scene of New York, they ascended quickly to the mainstream with their debut album, and by 2005 had scored three Brit Awards and a multi-platinum selling debut. On a personal level, the Scissor Sisters were so important to me. Discovering them at a time I was really starting to embrace my own sexuality and experiment with my fashion and finding my chosen family in the queer club scene of London. The Scissors were different They created this inclusive and welcoming vibe that felt like everyone was welcome. And I will never forget my first gig when I dragged my ass to Brixton Academy in a sequin blazer string vest combo and had what felt like a religious experience. From romping around the stage at the Brits in ostrich feathers and leather lederhosen to rubber chaps and braces, Jake's outfits were as much queer activism as the inclusive party anthems he was performing whilst wearing them. I want to talk to him about how he went about putting those looks together. Who helped him? How he used fashion as a form of activism and pushed such an exciting subculture into the mainstream, leaving everything else feeling like the miserable ante at Christmas lunch. I'm going to be talking to Jake about some of his most iconic looks and you can follow along and see all the outfits we're talking about on our Instagram page at What Were You Thinking Podcast. And feel free to send us your favourite fashion moments. Just use the hashtag, hashtag WWYT Podcast. Hi, Jake. Thank you so much for being on What Were You Thinking? I'm so excited to talk to you today. Hi. Thanks for having me. Where are you in the world right now? I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana, in my little like love shack down here. I've got like this little place I've had here for five years or so, but I just bought a house six months ago, about a 20 minute walk away. So I'm in the process right now of like all my furniture got in like a week ago. So everything like I'm like in the middle of like a crazy move. Cause were you between there and LA for a while? Yeah. Yeah. I have, I've kind of had one foot in LA, one foot in New York, and I'm still going to continue that. I just sort of wanted to consolidate for the time being. And I'm probably going to head back out to the West coast. Some when it's, when it seems like a good time, but it's just me and my dog here for now. You know, it's really quiet. It's like, there's not really many tourists. It's really only locals. 
And it's just, it's, it's quiet. I love it here so much. Okay, so today I want to talk to you about some of your most recognizable looks, both through your solo career, but also with the Scissors. I have such a personal connection to the Scissor Sisters because they just came about at a time that really connected with me on a personal level. You know, they really just made it all right for me to explore everything and go a bit crazy and just sort of explore my sexuality and just be free. I wanted to say thank you for that because personally that was just an amazing thing for me to have at the time. So I'm going to get that out of the way because that's cringe. I want to talk to you more about the fashion and, and the costumes that you wore on stage as well, because I think that was as much a part of what you guys were about. You know, you were this in incredible band that represented so many things. And that really kind of came across through the way that you, you know, you, you dressed on stage as a band and the way that you kind of presented yourself. So I want to start from the beginning. Like, when did you first realize the power of fashion you know was it something you embraced as a, as a kid growing up is it something that you did you ever dress to fit in when you were growing up and then you flourished later or? i dressed to stand out i mean when i was coming out when i was like 15 i was going to this i had a year where i was at this big school with a lot of just like very conservative kids and i was coming out and like i wanted to antagonize people so I was just really angry. I was really aggressive and I dressed very angry and very aggressively. <laughs> what does an angry, aggressive Jake Shears look like then? Just like, it was really harsh. I was like chains all over me. I'd like rat my hair out. I was like, had, you know, wear fishnets on my arms and like paint my nails and, you know, wear skirts and just anything I could find. I mean, cause also when you're 15, it's not like you've got like money to go buy anything. So you're just like digging around wherever, you're just like finding anything, anywhere to like put. I used to wear this like purse on my head. Like I found this like purse that like looked like sort of cool. So like I would go to school wearing a purse on my head and like. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go down? It was like just total clash all day long it was like really scary and like yeah i don't know why i put myself through that i felt like i just i wanted to just be able to like be aggressively myself so i think that's when i first realized like the power of of appearance and the power of clothes and the power of like what you look like because it was actually causing people you know, it was making people angry. <laughs> it was like... It was like activism, you know, it was a way of you kind of asserting yourself and like who you were. And it was just like, fuck you if you don't like it. Yes, exactly. And so that's when I first sort of realized like how powerful that was because it, you know, it made every day a, a gauntlet. It really intensified everything. And I think if I would have just, I could have had a much more peaceful life that year if I would have just dressed like everybody else, but. <laughs> and so how old were you when you got to New York? I was 20 when I moved to New York. You know, I, I just shopped at a lot of thrift stores and I loved, um, you know, finding just like cool pieces. Like I remember when I first moved to New York, I found this like puffy, like Princess Leia jacket with this huge, big kind of like, like Barbarella for like, like, you know, running around in that. And, like, you know, I would find like pieces that were really like that I thought were really cute. I mean, I look back now and I'm just like, my God, here's my secret. I've never been able to dress myself. No, that's not true. I really have a bad sense of fashion. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know how to. I have a very hard time with it. 
as I get older, you know, I don't want to like always be wearing like, well, I love living in New Orleans because I basically can just wear my gym clothes all day. This is the extent of getting dressed up down here is like a linen shirt. And that's... I, I appreciate the effort. Thank you. <laughs> and, but, uh, but yeah, I just, just sort of overall, I've not been great with clothes. I mean, you know, I don't think that purse on my head when I was 16 looked good. <laughs> like, I think... <laughs> <laughs> it did its job. But, like, when you got to New York, did you sort of... You discovered this whole community and in, in the club scene and, you know, in fashion and art. And did you evolve and change the way that you dress by taking in what was around you at that time from that scene? I mean, I was, you know, like doing little performances and doing like, uh, you know, numbers and clubs and stuff kind of just right before Scissor Sisters, like just experimenting. And I would just kind of pick up whatever was around. And then once when Scissors started, at first I was like, thinking, oh, I don't want to be known for, like, look. I want to be, like, known for the music. And and uh, that lasted about two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, I want more attention. No, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, we didn't have any money. So, like, I remember I just found these photos during my moving, like, going through stuff of just, like, I had Anna give me a black dress. I had baby daddy give me a uh, black like shirt and pants that fit and I got a you know and I just took all this green paint and just like dumped it all over our clothes <laughs> and let it dry and that was like our you know we looked like a band all of a sudden but that was like the first time I remember just like trying to get some sort of like look going between us yeah amazing in those early days was it important to you to look like a band then like visually did you think about what you looked like visually or was it much more about how you sounded and your music and it was both but the vision you know those early shows when it was really just like three of us and then when Dell joined you know when it like those early shows we were really trying I remember like we would just have different themes you know what I mean I'd be like you know we're gonna do pirates on this next one and so like We'd all sort of like dress up like, you know, it would just dress up like pirates and pull like fake snakes out of baskets and just like, you know, we would just ha go on, have li different little tangents. Um, but then, you know, it was for me, it was just easiest to wear, you know, Daisy Dukes with a like beaded thong underneath and like a harness that I could just pull off the Dukes. And then like, you know, because I was go-go dancing at the time, too. So I kind of had all of these stripper clothes. So that was sort of an easy thing. I could just sort of like dig through the stripper stuff and wear that on stage too. When you've got a gig at seven and a go-go dance at nine, you've got to make, you know, make it work. You can put them both together. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so that was definitely like influenced part of it, you know? Yeah. And when did you start working with stylists? When did that part of the process come in? I think uh, there's a designer named Todd Thomas that was like the first person, uh, you know, he does lots of like costumes and a wonderful guy. That was the first person that kind of like joined up with us and was like, you know, starting to like help us put stuff together and would like make me a piece of like, like some really cool sort of like sweatpants with these like panels on them. And like, he'd make Dell a, a, like a, a piece to kind of go with it. That was sort of the first, but once we got signed to Polydor in the UK, um, we started working with Mrs. Jones. Her name's Fee Jones. And she really, 
I credit her and Johnny Blue Eyes. You know, he was assisting her at the time. That whole first album was all them. I mean, they really like created by hand and 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 styled everything and and did an amazing, amazing, amazing job. We'll be right back after this. This podcast is brought to you with Vestiaire Collective. That's French for shared wardrobe to you and me. The leading global platform for pre-loved fashion. With a community of over 9 million fashion activists buying and selling pieces from each other. If you don't know them, now's the time to check out their circular fashion movement. Download the Vestiaire Collective app and use my special promo code HENRY at the checkout for 20 quid off when you spend just 150. Full T's and C's on vestiairecollective.com. You can thank me later. So that probably takes us perfectly onto the first outfit that we were going to talk about in a bit more detail, was, which was the Brits performance, 2005. Yes. Which I think this was Mrs. Jones. We should also point out Mrs. Jones was also made the Kylie catsuit with the splits and can't get you out of my head. She was kind of... Absolutely. The woman of 2005, wasn't she? <laughs> I love her so much. And, you know, she's somebody that I really, I'm, I miss her. I'm looking at this photo right now. She was just, you know, it was amazing with her. Like she, at the time, you know, we found her when you're putting the album together, you're putting the videos together. And like, what I love is when you're working with somebody that is helping you figure out who you are. Like she was helping us and she was helping me form this persona that I was still figuring out. She was just like integral to that. And when you put on certain things, I can put something on and I do become someone else. Like there's there's a Mardi Gras down here like three years ago where I don't, someone made me something and I, that I, I wore all day for Fat Tuesday and I, became another person for the day. It was, I was sort of walking differently. Like it was really weird. <laughs> That's what I love about clothes. I love that they have the power to do that and make you feel that way and change the way that you, you feel and, and behave and all of those things. It's all encompassed in this one kind of visual, like billboard, how you want people to see you. Yeah. And someone that day called me the bruiser and it became like a whole other character. And like, I started writing music as the bruiser and like, just very strange. But she, during this time, I mean, she really, uh, she and Johnny really were part of creating the band. Well, it feels like the band itself came out of a community of like the club scene and that whole environment. And you were very much authentic to that and it was a very kind of a natural building and growing of that aesthetic it was never something that was like okay we're gonna be this we're gonna be that and it was also she was taking cues from the music too which was it's funny because when we were making the music that first album like we didn't even I mean we were like in the electro clash scene and we started making like piano rock and like <laughs> like I we really didn't know what we were doing and I didn't know where the influences were even coming from at the time you know what I mean it's not like it was just these these songs were coming out very naturally. And then, you know, but it does take other people to sort of like see what you, you know, I ne never make anything alone. I don't really think anybody ever makes anything alone. Like you've got, it's always a big collaboration. Life is a big collaboration. It's my favorite thing about being a creative person. You know, it's a matter of like seeing, seeing what the music is and like showing us what those influences are and like where our own stuff is coming from that we may not even necessarily be aware of that. And like 
you know, at the time, like teaching us like some music history and fashion history and like all this stuff. Because it's got like feels of like Bob Mackie, Elton John vibes to it, as well as kind of, you know, all of the other references that we're throwing in there. And then that performance, you performed with Jim Henson puppets, right? A lot of our music was uh, inspired by stuff from the Muppets and Paul Williams, who wrote a lot of those songs. So it was like taking these influences and just like starting to like pull stuff together that didn't necessarily kind of like all make sense before. And that number was, is like just one of the things I'm like most proud of, you know? It's a dream and I still go back and every once in a while, like take a look at it. And it's just, it's it's just so cool. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's just so iconic to, to see you guys and such this kind of unapologetic, like celebration of camp and everything just being on such a big stage at the time. I just think it's, and just so like, silly and fun and playful and at the same time just like creating this iconic image of the giant fluffy bird it was just so cool it was a peak definitely it was a peak and it made me say you know i gotta say at the end of that night i mean i've written about this moment but you know we won all of our brits and everything that night and it like i was really depressed after all that i felt like after that night after that number and that night i really felt like what else is there to do? Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I felt done. I was like, I feel like we're finished. I mean, we went on for uh, quite a bit longer, you know, and made more albums and whatnot. But like, <laughs> but it took me yeah. a long time to get over, you know, I, I do think in certain ways, you may have multiple heydays, but you'll only have that first heyday once. I think that's a very hard thing to come to terms with. And I remember that night was the moment that I realized that. And it, 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 it messed me up for a couple of years. You know, it really took me a long time to sort of be, you have to make peace with that. Like you were touring and performing and nonstop at that time. So you must have just been kind of having to keep, keep going and pushing through whilst feeling all that. It was exhausting. We'd been touring for years. You know, we just hadn't stopped. By the time we were doing that, it was like two solid years of just nonstop running the club. We were exhausted. I was like not in not in my right mind. So that night you performed with the Muppets. You won three Brits. Where did you, where did you end up? <laughs> <laughs> you know what's crazy? I can't fucking remember. Oh, of course you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we had to fly to Tokyo the next, like, first thing in the morning. So I feel like we probably went to the K-West for a few minutes, like, where everybody sort of went. And then, Classic. And then You've just personified an entire four years of music history with the name of that hotel. Uh, Alexa Chung will be thrilled with you for that. Um, yeah, the K-West is probably where you ended up on a corridor floor somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that whole that whole period then, you worked a lot with Mrs. Jones and Feed Around, just kind of, it very much told the story of the album. And like you say, it kind of connected with the music. Was, it, was there any points that you, you kind of fought against anything that, you know, was being kind of put forward to you. Did you ever feel, did you ever feel like a performing monkey? Like, oh, Jake, put this on, you'll look, you know, mental, it'll be great. No, my philosophy with working with people, especially in fashion and clothes and costumes is like, I really, 
I care deeply about really trusting whoever I'm working with because God knows that's not my forte. Like I'm not, I know what I like when I see it. I love dressing up in amazing things, but I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to be wearing. Like I don't, you know what I mean? I really, I can be inspired and give a nugget of an idea, but that's, I'll wear, I'll put on anything. Like, you know, I really <laughs> like, I'll. That's like the dream client. I'm sure you're just going into a meeting with a stylist. You'd be like, seriously, I'll put on, I've worn a handbag on my head at 15. Yeah, I'll like, wear what I will wear anything. Because I believe I want someone else to have, that's what they do. That's their, that's their, this is their livelihood. This is their vision in a way on certain things. So it's just like, I, and it is a collaboration, but I really do want to, Ideally, I, I just want to trust everybody I'm working with and just, you know. But then in terms of your musical inspirations and like your musical heroes, you know, you quote Bowie as being, you know, one of the reasons why you perform and how much you loved his whole presence. And was that was that ever an inspiration for you? Did you ever want to channel his visual aesthetic as well as musical kind of inspirations or you just kind of went with it? He's always going to be like a, a board. Like I'm always, always, always looking at Bowie. I'm always listening to Bowie. I read the extract from your book uh, earlier today about when you emailed him, when he emailed you after coming to the show. <laughs> yeah. And then you emailed him three weeks later. Like, tell me about that. It's like kind of a regret in my life. Like I couldn't handle it. The, and his email was so cryptic and like, I just didn't, it was too much. It was too much. And like, at the time I really had, I felt like I was getting, like all of my dreams were being like fulfilled. And like, that was one that I was just like, I, that I didn't want fulfilled. I was just like, I, he's, he's just everything to me, you know, and always will be. And it's just, it's scary when that suddenly like, you know, when he's been around and like, he's emailing me, it's just like, no, like just, just, but you know, I was thinking, um, you know, and I hope it didn't offend him. I hope it didn't like, I hope I didn't seem like an asshole. Have you ever heard from him since or? No, I basically told him in that thing. I was just, I told him when I wrote him back, I was just like, I love you so much. Like, you know. Let's just call it. Let's just, let's just, <laughs> just know that I love you and, and, you know, whatever. And you know, sweet. I did hang out with Iman a couple of times and we shared a cab once from uh, uptown to like Soho and had a long conversation and she was so sweet. And we talked about him a little bit. And it was like, you know, I sent my love. Another encounter that you had that I, I've got actually um, another outfit to talk about alongside as well is when Bono came to one of your gigs. Yes. Let's talk about the outfit first, because it's quite a look. It's a pair of Vivian Westwood shorts, which lace right up the side. Yeah. And the cowboy boots. And you were performing on the steps of a museum. Yes. And the cowboy boots. Incredible. I think that's my favorite look I ever had. Like those shorts, the Westwood folks let us just go down into like the vaults of... Just all their, you know, over the years, just stuff that was like either on the runway that wasn't in the stores or just like, you know, it's just like this giant Westwood closet. You know, we'd buy stuff, but they would just like sell it to us for like nothing, you know, just like pieces and whatnot. So I found a bunch of stuff in there and those, that piece, those shorts, I found down in the Westwood vaults and 
I just wore them like crazy and I loved how they looked. They were very freeing, they were sexy. I love the lacing up the sides. I love pairing them with the, with just the thin braces and like a brooch and like a hat and then with the boots. Like that to me really summed up. And and there there's just a, there's an example of just putting, just cobbling something together, you know? And Johnny would do the, give me the, you know, a, I don't, I think I'm wearing a brooch in that, in that picture or some kind of like a. It's like a, a floral brooch on the, on the braces. Yeah, yeah. Those shorts, I wore the hell out of them all over the place on stage. They were super easy. And it's probably my favorite, my favorite look. It's funny. It's like now when I'm performing in the last few years, I really just like pile the shit on like and sometimes I'll look at pictures and be like my god I look like a I look like I just came out of a like you know I'm just like covered in like so much stuff it's like <laughs> the kitchen sink because I'm always like doing reveals and whatever and then I look at that look and then I'm like wow there was actually like not much going on but it was so strong there's a simplicity to it that's just really effective, I reckon, in terms of telling everyone what you're about. Mm. And you've always been really confident with your body. Like, has that always been the case? I wouldn't necessarily say confident. I think, you know, I've always been kind of an exhibitionist. I don't really know. I don't know. It's funny. It's like, and it goes in, it goes in waves. The, you know, when I was 24 years old, you know, I was a tiny little thing. You look at those pictures and I was like, I've got all these like heady Dior suits that I had from the time and whatever. And like, I just like, I can't even get anything like an arm in. Yeah. So I was tiny. My waist was just so small. So it's just over the years, you know, your body changes and whatnot. And like, I really try to stay fit and want to be fit. But, um, you know, I always liked to not end up with not very much on on stage just because I'm so active on stage. By the time I'm like flopping around on the ground and stuff and just like, I don't want to worry about having much on just because I'd rather just, I love to sweat, you know, I like to just be like drenched and, you know, wearing very little. I mean, you never stop bouncing around on stage. It's like, it's infectious, but I can imagine you need as little fabric about your person as possible. Exactly. And so this gig, when you were wearing these Westwood shorts, Bono came to see the gig, right? And he was backstage. Tell me that story. We were playing the steps of uh, PS1 Museum, this party called Warm Up. That was like an afternoon party on Saturdays that I sort of grew up with when I first moved to New York. So it was really special to like be playing this. And the party had gotten bigger and like, and also we'd been away for a while. We'd been working, you know, overseas. We, so coming back to New York, you know, to this massive crowd on the steps of this place that I'd been coming to for years. And, you know, that's where I first saw Fisher Spooner was there. And like, I'd been, and, and hearing new music and new DJs. And it was a place where I'd been very inspired, you know, and it was my second date with my boyfriend who ended up being my partner of 11 years. And uh, my mom was there. And Bono was there. And like, I remember Chris and I went up to this room. They put us in this, it used to be an old schoolhouse. And so I, I had a quiet room just to hang out. And we just like made love. And like, I remember afterwards, like looking out the window with them and just like this sea of people. And everyone saw us and we were just like <laughs> waving at people. Like, you had your Madonna on the hotel balcony moment. Yeah, I guess so. And then after the, the gig was so fun, after the gig, 
we went into, I think there was, I think it's a James Terrell room. It's a, it's a room with no ceiling. So it's like this room with benches around it. And there is just the sky above you. It was me and my mom and Chris and like some friends from college and like Bono with the sky above us. And he gave this speech. He like stood up and like gave this toast. It was just so, it was, the whole thing was just like so intoxicating. Like it was really like everything had just, everything had changed so quickly and it felt like a dream. You know, it really felt like it's, it was very surreal. Um, I'll never forget that day. Do you ever look back on those kind of peak moments like you talked about, you know, the Brits in 2005 and then, and then that day as well, but do you ever look back on those moments and feel like you didn't kind of grab hold of it hard enough at the time? Or do you feel like you did, you really kind of rinsed everything you could out of it? Or do you ever look back and feel like you let it get to you in any way, you know, like ego or? I don't think so. I mean, I definitely had an ego and I could be a real asshole and all, all that stuff. It's your prerogative, you're a pop star. That's what my ex-husband basically said to me. The other, I, You know, I, I, we got on the phone the other night for a few hours and we hadn't had a talk. We broke up five years ago and like, we had a long talk and I was like, you know what? I, I could really be, I think a lot about how what much of an asshole I could be. And he was like, that's why I was with you. He was like, that's why I loved you. <laughs> Um, but, but no, I feel like those moments, like I treasured them, you know, I'm such a music, you know, I grew up like music being my passion and listening to music and going to concerts and wearing clothes that like sort of represented, you know, what you listen to and what you're into and, um, and, and subcultures. And what was the first concert you ever went to? Susie and the Banshees on the Superstition tour. I was 12. Wow. Yeah. It was amazing. Did you go with your mom or with friends? No, my mom let me, my mom dropped me off and picked me up. And I went with, I went with my friend Amy Dusky. That is the coolest first gig story I think I've ever heard. At 12 years old, you, it was were, amazing. you were cool enough to go to Susie and the Banshees like that. Oh, I was so excited. The Wonder Stuff opened up. And I remember, I'll never forget, it was between the opener and the band that I heard Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine for the first time. They were playing it over the loudspeakers. They were playing the whole album of Pretty Hate Machine. And I remember just like hearing that Nine Inch Nails record for the first time, just being like, what is this? <laughs> you know? That's one way to get the crowd going, right? Before a gig, <laughs> play the Nine Inch Nails. I grabbed a hold of those moments and I, and I still do. I don't take any of that stuff for granted. And I... I remember when my first, when my book first came out, like a couple people writing about it were like, it's so name droppy. And I'm like, that was my experience. Like what, <laughs> what do you, what the like, what the fuck do you think you're reading? Like, like <laughs> would you rather I replace Bono's name with somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it was just, it was so stupid. I'm like, yeah, that's what, cause I'm always, I'm, I love, I love rock and roll history. I love moment and who was in the room there. And like, you get all these crazy mashups of people around and like, I love that stuff. Yeah. And that's the reality. Like that's the kind of weirdness and the fun part of being in a museum with your mom and Bono is kind of iconic, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the next look I'm going to talk about which is the, it's kind of three in a row, really. I wanted to talk, to talk to you about Saturday Night Live. We've talked about the Brits and then we've talked about PS1 gig as well. Um, but then because the album was 
a huge success in the UK and, you know, the rest of the world and all over Europe and you toured endlessly, but then it wasn't as big in the States. Do you have any thoughts on why that was? Or do you just think it was? I'll tell you what it was. This is this is actually really interesting. Yeah. So at the time, they would like delay releases, right? There, there, there wasn't there was no iTunes yet or anything. So it's like our record came out in the UK in like February of two thousand four, and it didn't come out in the states until like July of two thousand four. So we'd really been like working, working, working in the UK so much, and we had just kind of come back over to the states and we're start, like working. The States, but it's not like we, we, and you know, when the album came out in the UK, it wasn't a hit when it came out. I mean, it, I think debuted at number 11 or whatever. It took February, March, April, May, June. That album took five months to get to like, to number one. Which, can you imagine that happening now? Well, it's completely <laughs> flipped now, isn't it? Because now the album's released and everyone downloads whichever track they want to listen to at the time. Whereas back then we were sort of, we would wait for it to be a single and then be like, oh, I like that one. But like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It took five months. Yeah. We hadn't had that five months yet in the States. We hadn't had that time yet in the States. And I remember the New York Times, they had these, like a sidebar in the art section every day. The New York Times printed, ran this like, 200 word thing. This was a week after our album had come out in the States or something. And the headline was hot over there, cold over here. And basically was this mean little snippet about how, how like we weren't doing well and how it was so big over there, but we weren't doing well in the States. That little piece became what we're still talking about now. It's so crazy. And like that became the narrative. And we actually did really well in the States and kept, you know, as the years went on, we'd like kind of get, yeah, the shows were, were just getting bigger. I mean, we did really well in the States. We had an amazing career in the US. It's just funny how like one little thing like that can really like write the, write the narrative. So it was frustrating. It was like sad, to, sad to see. So when did you do Saturday Night Live? That was kind of, must've been just after it launched in the States, right? Right then. Yeah. It was like that where it's all this is happening at the exact same time. Um, and ha like doing something that mainstream and kind of that big a deal kind of on SNL, did that feel like a good thing, a bad thing? Were you freaked out? Were you kind of, were you just exhausted and you were just sort of powering through? No, it was, it was so exciting. It was really, really, really exciting. And it was such a fun gig and I was so excited. And we did two numbers. We did Take Your Mama, we did Comfortably Numb. There was a girl that had designed some really cool stuff for me. And I, that's what I wore on Take Your Mama. And then I've been hanging out with the Heatherette folks, you know, and that's how I met the amazing Amy Phillips, who's an awesome friend of ours. Like, you know, she's, she's total family. And that's when Amy and I really met and Richie Rich and Traver and Amy were back there and they had this woman's, like, would you call that a halter top? Yeah, it's like a halter tuxedo, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like backless. Yeah. I sort of picked it out from their studio. But like baby daddy hadn't seen it yet. And he was getting the full backless view of that. He was, he got it. Oh yeah. And like, he didn't know, he didn't know Amy yet. You know, and he and Amy ended up becoming, you know, they're, they're like, they're like brother and sister. He, they didn't even know each other yet. So Scott, baby daddy was like, I was trying this on. I remember putting it on the dressing room and he was just like, who the fuck are these people? What the fuck are you wearing? 
this is crazy. <laughs> and I just, I felt, I was like, I think this is the one, I really like made the decision to wear that. Like, I love that you still, even after someone questioned you, someone who you cared about and loved so much, like Baby Daddy, who like called you out and questioned you on that. And it was such a important performance. You were just like, yeah, yeah, this is it. People still talk about this outfit and like, it turned out kind of scandalous. We started getting hate mail. Like, I think SNL was getting, like, people were, for some reason, like, me in a backless tuxedo jumpsuit or something, like, was, I don't know, it got people a little wound up. But, uh, I mean, that was that was 2004. I mean, that's, that's going on 16 years ago. It's really funny how, and now it's like, I mean, who, you know, we're just in a different time. I mean, do you think there was a different reaction to the you know, that kind of overtly camp and like sexualized way that you would perform and, and wear stuff on stage to the, in the States than there was in the UK? Do you think there was more, I mean, you, just, you said there was hate mail to SNL. Did you ever get anything like that in the UK? I think as Boy George, you know, said in a UK interview something, I mean, I could be totally paraphrasing, but he's like, everybody here loves a big queen, you know, in, in the UK. And it's always like, it's kind of a, an archetype that is, you know, always been celebrated to a certain degree in the UK, whereas it wasn't so much in the, in the States. Did you ever get anything from the label, like any resistance from the label? Did the label ever say, like, maybe you need to calm it down a little bit? Maybe we'll wear some chaps with a crotch in them this time? Or Third album, yeah, was, was, was major pushback. And why after such all that time, do you think? Was it they were trying to reposition you. What what was that about? They were just, you know, everyone was comfortable. First album had done great. Tada had been a real... It was all like a very successful formula. And we broke the formula on the third record and like made it more edgy and a little more intense. And the artwork was more intense. You know, we used a Robert Maplethorpe photo for the cover of like an ass, like someone grabbing their ass. And it was just like... <laughs> Love that album cover. I'm so proud of it. Is it a ballerina's ass? Yeah, it's a dancer named Peter Reed. And it was shot in the early 80s. And like, you know, both men, of course, the photographer and the subject both died of AIDS. And that was kind of what the record was about and kind of hearkening back to a certain time. And, mm. you know, I, I wanted the record to kind of, uh, you know, touch upon all these amazing artists that we lost and it just got very sex oriented. So the clothes got really a bit edgier. So it was a conscious thing from your perspective to really kind of like push the boundaries a little bit more and reference these kind of queer cultural moments. So I, I, I wanted to just like, yeah, push it a little bit more. We'd sort of been just so saturated in the culture and like it took us a long time to make that third record. Here's the thing, you know that moment that I was talking about earlier with the Night of the Brits? You have this realization when something like that happens that something someday is going to not do as, like you're gonna have some bombs. Initially that record really bombed. <laughs> 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 but it was such a relief because I loved it and I loved what we were doing. You felt like you were making it for yourself and you were, you know, you were doing what you wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, and it's an insurance policy. It's just like, it doesn't, you, you have to get to this point where it's like, okay, it doesn't necessarily matter so much because I'm making something that I really want to make. And it's like, that album just had its 10th anniversary and the, the Sunday Times just did a big feature on it 10 years later and it's like... It's a grower, not a shower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and it's funny, it's like the head of 
I had everybody calling me, the head of Universal worldwide, literally like on the phone being like, you've got to change this album cover. You've got to change this album cover. And I said, you know what? I said, when Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe shot the cover for Horses, like Clive Davis apparently was like, what the fuck is up with this album cover? You've got this like woman with a mustache, like with no makeup on, like, you know, what's going on? <laughs> and it turned out to be Patti Smith Horses. <laughs> That's what I said to the head of Universal Worldwide. And this is why you need to just leave me alone, because it's going to be fine, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Good for you. The the costumes got a lot more sexual, a lot more kind of a bit harder, a bit kind of tougher. It was less sequins fringing and, and feathers and more, you know, rubber and denim and, and braces. I wanted to sort of ask you about that. And So it, it was more of a kind of conscious push to sort of... Yes, and also I was becoming self obsessed obsessed with my body at the time. So it was very, I was like even sexualizing myself a bit more. And I think about this a lot with Instagram and stuff and my, my, my view of it has really changed. And it's just like, when it sort of gets like that and sort of where I was, I feel like you're sort of passing your own insecurities off onto other people and to younger people. There's something about it that I regret a little bit. You know, and it's something that I don't, that I'm very conscious of doing now. I mean, if you're constantly looking at pictures of yourself with your shirt off, it's going to make you question what you look like with your shirt off, I guess. Yeah. But then Instagram came out after the third album. And then that, that sort of just like made it into like a, a whole new snowball. So then when you stopped performing with Scissors and you moved to New Orleans and you wrote your book and, you know, you performed on Broadway, you did Kinky Boots, did you actively move away from that way of dressing and, and that those kind of costumes, as it were? By the time I got into Kinky Boots, my regimen kind of, everything sort of changed. It wasn't so much about being worked out anymore. It was about just like having the stamina to be on stage for 15 hours in a 48-hour period. You know what I mean? It was. How many shows did you do a week when you were, doing it was it six a week eight eight yeah wow for how many weeks uh i did a hundred shows i it was just one of the best times of my whole life like i had such a good time like it's funny i had finished recording my first solo record since i got kinky boots it was gonna be i wasn't gonna put it out to the following summer but i loved just being in this broadway theater you know, I had like my own dressing room on the side, you know, it was just crazy. Like I just couldn't, it was like, and I love musicals. I love theater. I write musicals. And it was just like, just to be on that stage and to be in that place and learning about it and learning what goes into it and being inside that machine was just like an absolute joy. And my dresser, this woman named Ginny. So everybody, I didn't know this, but everybody's got their own dresser. You know, you've got this like one person that basically their whole job is to like, follow you around and tie your clothes off and put them back on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so she had been a rockette for 30 years. She was like a rockette from like 1970 something to the early two thousands or something. Like she'd been a rockette for 30 years. And right. You know, when we started working together, she brought in a photograph to me and showed me, she had it in her locker and it was her and a couple of other rockettes in white top hats and you know they're leotards with like white suit jackets with tails and like their you know the fishnets and their shoes all in white with peter allen also in all white and this big white piano they were on stage i think at radio city doing something and it was just such a cool photo you know it was in a frame and i was like can i hang this on the wall while i'm here and she said sure 
and she and I got very, very close and she's just amazing. Her look there basically inspired all of my fashion for like the next two years. I basically started dressing like a weird rocket. <laughs> As you were describing it, I was like, I know the look. You did, you referenced that look with the white top hat and then the black leotard and the fishnets and the shoes. Yeah, which was great because any sort of spare tire that I was getting at the time was <laughs> awesome because I didn't have to have my shirt off and I could just show my legs, which like suddenly, you know, you're still showing skin, but it's like leg time now. You were basically wearing <laughs> skims and fishnets. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I got to say, like, it's funny how those moments, and that's kind of what happens with me, is like you just have these moments like with people or you're somewhere and like you see something and I don't know, that just informed like where where my whole stage show ended up going was, and also being being in this, you know, in this Broadway show and back in this dressing room and before I'd go on every night, I'd listen to Chicago and I'd listen to Cabaret and be like singing at the top of my lungs from the shower. All of that went into, like, the next thing that I did. With your solo performances, you're much more covered. You tend to be a bit more... Well, I mean, I'm just like, I turned 42 this week, you know what I mean? So it's just like, I'm like... <laughs> but it's reflected in the music as well, you know, it's a little bit more, you know, it kind of, it matches that better. Yes, yes. And I don't, I, I mean, who knows? I'm like, I've really gotten fit again now, which feels great. Like, I've really, like... You know, I only drink on Fridays and I've just been like, you know, working out like a maniac, but it's in a different way. It's in like just a, it's a much more like I feel very like fit and lean and ready to go and my cardio is good. And like I, I could even I feel like I would get back on stage right now and even be sort of at another place from where I was. So who knows how I'm going to feel? I don't know. But at the time, it felt like, yeah, the right thing to do. And also, it's funny, you don't want to. Um, especially with like Instagram and stuff like, and, and just with images really getting like, you know, out there in a certain way, I don't want to be like known as like more of like a torso than like a musician. You know what I mean? Like I really never, and you see that happen with like, especially with gay artists, you know what I mean? You see, you see really like, Oh Yeah. Yeah. The thirst like takes over in this big way and and next thing you know it's just like they're basically models and like the music thing is like a is some side note and and I I just don't I I I have no desire to be in that camp. Well, I don't think you ever will be. I think you have plenty of stuff under your belt which qualifies you to be so much more than a torso, that's for sure. Thank you. I've got to I got to say though, you know who did the last the all the last round of all my stuff was this guy Michael Schmidt out of Los Angeles and he's a designer that does, I mean, he's done all it's like famous share dresses, Gaga, Christina, he's done all of them. And just like, he's famous for all of his, like just rhinestones, Swarovskis. It's just like everything, just crazy Swarovskis. And we've been friends for a long time and it was always kind of my dream to, to do something with him. So he, he did my whole last couple years and I was just, I loved the stuff he made for me. But again, just keeping it in the family and like creating that sense of community, which is what, you know, you've always been about, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. That was so 
interesting to hear everything. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. I'll be back next time with an actual knighted gentry. Until then, I'll keep you entertained on Instagram at What Were You Thinking Podcast. And check us out on TikTok at WWYT underscore podcast. If you liked what you heard, please let us know. Give us a rating. Five stars are what we prefer. Tell a friend, tell a friend. I'm going to have a quick look at the Vestia Collective app to see if I can find something to wear for the next show. If you download the app, make sure you use my promo code for 20 quid off when you spend 150. Just add Henry at the checkout. See you later.